This is an AMI podcast. Keep the conversation going off the air. Your voice matters. Email feedback at AMI.ca or connect with us on Twitter at AMI-audio and let us know what you think about our programming. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Everyone has the right to a safe, affordable, and secure home. In Canada and elsewhere around the world, people remain homeless, underhoused, or forced to endure unaffordable and inadequate housing. Housing and homelessness are increasingly understood as a global crisis with local implications. Women, youth, people with disabilities, and marginalized groups are especially vulnerable to homelessness and housing instability. By conceptualizing housing as a human right rather than a commodity, it's possible to transform approaches to eradicating homelessness. It's also possible to advance models that allow for the participation of grassroots communities to intervene in housing policy. Today, we discuss housing as a human right. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joyita Gupta and I'm the host of the program. It's really good to be with you today and I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you're staying safe and keeping well during the pandemic. I just wanted to remind you that if you missed any of AMI-audio's coverage around COVID-19, you can always visit ami.ca forward slash COVID-19. You can get a recap of all of the segments from our daily live shows, now with Dave Brown, Kelly and Company, and of course, from us here on The Pulse. My guest today is Leilani Farah, who is the former UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing and Global Director of The Shift, based in Ottawa. Hello and welcome to The Pulse. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Joita. Thanks so much. So Leilani, what can you tell us about The Shift? The Shift is a global movement to secure the right to housing. Relatively new, it came about on the understanding that housing is more often regarded, treated, and implemented as a commodity, you know, a place to grow capital, park capital, hide capital, leverage capital, but Mm -hmm. it's not often enough treated, especially by governments, as a human right, a place, um, you know, to grow families from which we contribute to our communities, a secure place, uh, a respite, uh, and a social good. So Mm -hmm. the shift is an attempt to bring together all of the actors around the world, and there are many, including governments, who actually do believe and recognize that housing is a human right and want to move forward on that and use that to inform housing policy, programs, and legislation. A while back, when I heard about Leila Nifara, is around the same time that I heard the term financialization of housing. When you say that housing is a commodity, is that really what you're getting at with this idea of financialization of housing? That's exactly it. Um, So the financialization of housing is actually... um, kind of phenomenon, we might say, that arose, really arose after the global financial crisis in 2008. 
at that time, just after the financial crisis, we see these mega financial actors move into the housing sector, which they call the residential real estate sector. And Mm -hmm. this was unprecedented in a couple of ways. One, the financial actors were bigger than before. I mean, there have always been, you know, corporations engaged in housing and buying up real estate. But these financial actors are private equity firms, pension funds, and have billions of dollars at their fingertips. And they really have changed the um, face of housing. They have moved in and using technology, actually, they have been able to purchase thousands of units in one go in one transaction. And they use um, a mechanism that basically puts housing on the stock market. So in a certain way, you know, you end up with shareholders in housing. So you can be a shareholder in Vancouver owning a property in Halifax and having no tie to that community, no relationship with your tenants, with the residents in that building that you own a share of. That's changed the nature of housing. And It's caused all sorts of human rights problems, which we can talk about. But that's what I mean when I talk about housing as a commodity or the financialization of housing. I'm not talking about the individual family or household that buys a home. And, you know, as a result, over time, they increase the equity in their home and and their home is worth more to them. That, that may be a concern. I'm not saying I'm not saying that that might that's of no concern to anyone, um, but that's not what I'm on about when I'm challenging the commodification or financialization of housing. It's this other, um, much bigger, much um, thornier uh, thing that's happened to the to the housing sector. Because you know, for a lot of people, when they think about, let's say, their landlord they might recognize that the landlord is uh, the owner of a large multi-residential complex. Maybe they have several complexes in one city, maybe even in several cities, and they are never really going to meet your landlord. That's perhaps the extent to which we can imagine being removed from the people who own housing and people who use housing as a way to move capital. To what extent are we talking about this phenomenon of financialization of housing being transnational? Oh, I mean, the actors uh, are uh, definitely transnational, if I understand your question correctly. Um, so, if I mean, it's it's actually the only way to, to understand these actors is to recognize that they're that they're global. Is that what you're you're getting at, Julia? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, if you take, for example, there's a, a a couple of uh, big ones in Canada, operating in Canada now. Um, they're asset management firms. Uh, one of them is Timber Creek. I mean, they uh, own properties around the world. Uh, they use the same model around the world. And their ownership base is around the world. So mm-hmm. where they derive their capital from comes from um, a variety of uh, uh, countries. And so... Um, we, we've moved away from the the 
the landlord that's certainly resident <laughs> in the city where they own the property. We're we are very far away from that. We're far away from a national uh, corporation that might have lots of properties in one country, uh, or even binational where they own in a couple of countries. Um, now these are truly global actors, and the money that they're that they have access to, their liquidity, or as they call it in some cases, dry powder. Um, comes from a variety of sources and gets intermingled. So you could have a Norwegian pension fund and you could have um, an individual of ultra high net worth contributing to the same pool of money that then gets invested, uh, you know, in some country and wherever, mm-hmm. let's say Sweden or um, uh, Denmark or, you know, wherever. Um, So Mm -hmm. that's part of what is so difficult about this is um, trying to wrestle down who are the actual owners of any one property at this time. Mm -hmm. You know, the the ones that are purchased by the Real Estate Investment Trust, for example. I'm speaking to Leila Nifara, who is the director of the global director of The Shift based in Ottawa. Leila You've really set the stage for us um, in terms of explaining the role of these large private equity firms um, and the ways in which the ownership of housing has become so dispersed. So how has that led to the prevalence of human rights abuses in housing? Uh, what has it? Yeah. What is it about this situation that has left vulnerable people especially uh, out of sorts? Yeah, and and that's the heart of the matter, uh, to be honest. Um, the stories are not good from around the world. I mean, we can go micro to things like tenants living in, you know, rental accommodation where, um, you know, they only have access to a 1-800 number when something goes awry in their apartment, right? So imagine that. Mm-hmm. Your heating goes off in the middle of winter and you're calling a 1-800 number that you can not always get through to, and there is no one on site to help you with your heating, right? So, I mean, that's mm-hmm. a sort of micro thing. On the more macro level, um, you have to look at the business model that is employed uh, in this by the financial actors. And You have to understand that for a private equity firm, for example, the client is the shareholder, the investor. The client is not the tenant. The tenant is the vehicle for better return on investment, right? Because the tenant Mm -hmm. pays their rent and the rent is the return on the investment. So Mm -hmm. the, the dynamic has changed entirely as to who is responsible to whom. The investor feels... Um, that the um, um, private equity firm is beholden to them. The tenant feels that the private equity firm is beholden to them. But in Mm -hmm. fact, the private equity firm really only cares or primarily cares, let's say, about the investor client. And so obviously that's problematic. I mean, we, housing is so fundamental to our well-being. The pandemic Mm -hmm. has exposed that. And um, you kind of want to know that whoever owns your building actually cares that you can continue to live there in a safe uh, and healthy way, right? And when mm-hmm. when your landlord is um, a private equity firm, you are not guaranteed that. The other thing that um, um, 
result is basically unaffordability. And that's the big claim and the claim that I've been making for several years now. The model requires, the business model requires that rents escalate because you want to have this continued return, good return on investment. And if you look at the deals that are struck between the private equity firms and their investor clients, you'll see the private equity firm is saying to their investor client, we're going to guarantee you a good return. We're going to give you certainly more than 5% return, easily 10% return. That's a high return on an investment. So the investor is expecting that. And the only way that they can do that, that, that the private equity or asset management firm can ensure that is by keeping those rents escalated. And um, in fact, what they do is they look for what they deem or they call undervalued properties. So they're scanning and they use technology to do this. They are constantly scanning landscapes around the world to find buildings that are for sale, apartment buildings, multi-family dwellings, as they call them, to find these buildings that are, in quotes, undervalued from which they can squeeze and extract more profit. And that mm-hmm. means raising rents. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the pandemic has exposed a lot to us. We see how precarious tenants are the world over. After one month of the pandemic of, of economic instability, people were saying, I don't think I can pay you my rent. And mm-hmm. so uh, imagine how hand-to-mouth tenants are living and to know that they're being threatened with increases in rents all the time is is very problematic and certainly contrary to human rights. My name is Juwita Gupta and with me is the Global Director of The Shift, Leilani Farah. Leilani, previously in our conversation, you mentioned the, the concept of housing as a human right. Can you expand on that for us? Sure. Um, You know, the concept is not that complicated. I think when people hear, oh, international human rights law and human rights law and oh, my gosh, what what could this mean? Um, People get, you know, feeling like this is is this beyond their comprehension or out of their depth. But really, the right to housing is simple. It's the right to live somewhere in peace, with security and in dignity. And uh, I think we can all understand that pretty easily. So if you're living in a homeless encampment in a tent and you don't have access to uh, fresh water, clean water, or a toilet, you can ask yourself, are you able, is that person able to live in dignity? Mm-hmm. If that encampment is threatened with eviction, which many encampments across Canada are, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, removal, are you given security? Do you have security? No. Mm -hmm. If you're living in an apartment building and your rent is constantly escalating and above guideline increases are, are being asked for and granted by your landlord, but your income remains stagnant, Mm -hmm. are you living in security? And, you know, so in that way, the right to housing is is super easy to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some really key uh, definitions of adequacy, because under international human rights law, what's protected is the right, excuse me, the right to adequate housing. So the key, some of the key elements of adequate housing are security of tenure, which I already talked about. So, mm-hmm. you know, that you shouldn't be fearful that you're going to be evicted, um, you know, at any given moment. Um it's uh, understanding that uh, housing has to be affordable. Uh, and affordability under international human rights law is 
very particular. It's about what a household can bear and can manage, not what the market can bear. And mm-hmm. that's something that governments really have to get their heads around because when government schemes are uh, um, sort of uh, developed around, you know, let's increase affordable housing, often what they'll say affordable housing is 80% of market rent. Yeah. Uh, but that is not how we define affordable. No. And you can imagine <laughs> how many people get excluded uh, in major cities, especially, uh, but even mm-hmm. in second cities in, in Canada, for sure. Um, and then one thing that a lot of governments don't realize is that, um, one, that homelessness is a prima facie violation of the right to housing. It makes sense, of course. If you think about homelessness, obviously, it is a, it, it is just such a glaring violation of the right to housing. And it's something that I really, I want people, um, all people to understand that when you see someone living in homelessness, what you're seeing is the failure of governments to effectively implement the right to housing. That's what homelessness is. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not an individual failure, rather it's a, it's a governmental failure. Uh, and it is a violation. And the other thing is evictions that lead to homelessness are also a violation of the right to housing. And that's something that should be top of mind uh, for all um, government authorities right now in the midst of this pandemic when so many people are really unable to pay their rent because of economic insecurity. Um, if that if that very legal ev- eviction, you know, we have landlord tenant boards, if if people are being, in quotes, legally evicted, but it's, mm-hmm. it's ending up that that person or family will, end, will be homeless, that is a violation under international human rights law as well. Mm-hmm. Because often we don't track really the number of evictions. Someone might, a landlord might turn to their tenant and give them an eviction notice, or they might even verbally tell the tenant, you need to leave. And most people aren't aware that there's a whole process that protects their security of tenure. So they just move out and nobody ever really even tracks these things. Uh, Leilani, what about people with disabilities? We know, at least I know anecdotally, that people with disabilities have some unique challenges when it comes to security of tenure and keeping affordable housing. What are some of the observations that you've made? Mm. I actually wrote one of my thematic reports when I was special rapporteur on uh, persons with disabilities and the right to housing because I'm so deeply concerned by their experiences um, globally, um, absolutely one of the most vulnerable populations, uh, one of the populations um, experiencing the most extreme forms of poverty and discrimination. And um, that plays itself out fully and completely in the area of housing. We know that persons with disabilities are overrepresented amongst homeless populations. That would be true globally, and it's certainly true in the context of Canada. Um, And um, that is obviously hugely problematic. Governments actually have to address homelessness on an urgent and priority basis and make sure that the way in which they address homelessness deals with any disabilities uh, that 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 population might have, whether that's physical disability or psychosocial disability, it doesn't matter. The, 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 the only real solution uh, to addressing people living in homelessness with disabilities is to ensure access to immediate access to long-term housing options with supportive 
services for as long as those supportive services are necessary. So if the person requires, you know, a lifetime of, of social supports, that's what the government must commit to. If they only require a couple of months of social supports, that's what the government must commit to. Um, so that's sort of one of the most pressing issues. Um, I've seen, um, as I said, poverty issues are huge for persons with disabilities, deep poverty in, in Canada, those living on uh, um, disability uh, social assistance uh, are living far below poverty levels, which means they cannot afford available housing. We know that most people who receive income supports from the government actually live in private market accommodation. There's a myth that if you're in receipt of some kind of social assistance from the government, you're living in social housing. Complete myth. Mm -hmm. um, most people are living in private market housing, and we already talked about affordability issues. Um, you know, rent across the country of Canada and, and really every city in the world is experiencing affordability issues. Uh, and so that would be a, a huge issue for persons with disabilities. Um, being able to maintain that security of tenure that, that we already discussed. There mm -hmm. are, of course, issues around um, the duty to accommodate uh, physical disabilities, um, obviously a huge problem. Many landlords do not know what's required of them, not just under international human rights law, but domestic law. Uh, in Canada, for example, we have very good uh, human rights legislation at the provincial and territorial level that, that uh, landlords have to abide by. So if a person has a physical disability, they need to be accommodated, uh, reasonably accommodated um, to meet their needs. And landlords often don't, um, don't know that, or if they know it, they reject it. Um, and obviously, that can make life hell for a person uh, with a disability. Um, so lots going on there that needs to be addressed on an urgent uh, basis. I'm speaking to Leilani Farah, who is the Global Director of The Shift. Leilani, one of the things that you're working on amongst many is a podcast that recently debuted. Tell us a little bit about your podcast. Ah, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, um, so some of the listeners may know that a film came out last year in um, March of 2019 called Push. It's a documentary film made by a Swedish uh, filmmaker named Frederick Gerten. And uh, the film is about this financialization of housing. And, you know, w what's making it so difficult for people to afford the rent in cities? The filmmaker followed me for a couple of years, so I end up being the central character in that film. We were supposed to have that film released in the UK and the US uh, in March and April of this year, and uh, COVID hit. And mm -hmm. so we found ourselves unable to release it in the way that we normally would by going to film festivals and going to cities and screening the film. And we thought to ourselves, well, what can we do to make sure that this conversation really continues while theaters around the world are closed, et cetera? And we decided to start a podcast called Pushback Talks. So we have um, actually this week marks the 10th uh, episode, um, and we're covering a variety of aspects of the financialization of housing, uh, issues like Airbnb and uh, this week's is on golden visas where where you can pay to get citizenship by just simply investing in, in residential real estate. We talk mm -hmm. about 
financialization, the monster that is financialization and um, all, all different aspects of the financialization of housing, corrupt money. Uh, we have a couple of episodes uh, around that. Um, so we're really hoping right now, I, we, I just got the statistics this morning, as a matter of fact, and we have listeners in 76 countries, which is oh. pretty cool. So it's a global podcast at this point. Our Canadian list, listenership is a little low. We have 41% of listeners from Sweden, obviously, following the filmmaker, but only 14% from Canada. So we've got to up those numbers, get more listeners in Canada. <laughs> but we're really excited. It's a fun, it's a fun medium to be using uh, to, to try to really delve into human rights, housing, and financialization. I've got about, I'm told, three and a half minutes to go. So in those three and a half minutes, okay. I'm going to ask you for a very tall order, which is, Given the scale of the problem that you've described, what is the best way to go about eradicating housing? That's a lot to get done in about three and a half minutes and under, but go for it. Yeah, so how do we address the housing crisis that is occurring around the world? There are a couple of things. I think first, we have to go back to first principles. Mm-hmm. And I think we we have to get governments, because it's governments who have human rights accountability and responsibility and obligations, right, under international human rights law. So we need governments, first and foremost, to recognize that housing is a fundamental human right. And they can do that by adopting legislation, for example, that recognizes that housing is a human right. From there and only from there should policies and programs spring. And the policies and programs have to recognize that homelessness is a prima facie violation and must be addressed immediately, that forced evictions into homelessness are a violation and cannot cannot occur, and that there are programs around the world that could be adopted um, uh, to ensure that, that evictions don't lead to homelessness. We need governments to start interacting with the big financial actors and regulating those actors to tell those actors, hey, in our country, if you want to do business, you have to recognize that housing is a human right and that affordability is a key measure of the adequacy of housing. And we are going to protect tenants and protect them from unreasonable rent increases through rent controls, rent freezes, et cetera. That's a tidy. If, if governments just did that, we'd be in a good place. Well, this is a great, that, that's (laughs) spectacular. Leilani Farah, thank you so much for being with us on the program today. It's such a pleasure talking with you. That was Leilani Farah, Global Director of The Shift and former UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing. She spoke to us today from Ottawa. If you missed any of my conversation or would like to go back and have a listen, you can find this show on your favorite podcast platforms. Not much to say here, except that there are some really big concepts to unpack in this episode of The Pulse. And I hope you'll take some time to think about the scope and the scale of the financialization of housing and the degree to which this has become prevalent in all of our lives. The big actors that act in such a, in an invisible fashion to shape something as essential as housing, which is indeed a human right. You can always check out ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'll have a couple of other remarks there as well. So please head on over there and I'll put a link to Leilani's podcast if you'd like to have a listen, as well as some of Leilani's previous reports and research. All of that will be there for you on the show blog page. I'd like to thank Leilani Farah for being our guest today. The technical producer for The Pulse is Nisreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you.
This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.